The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Now, as has already been mentioned, today is Super Bowl Sunday. And I know that many of you are present this morning not to hear the choir or even the children, but for one reason and one reason only, you have come yearning for my annual Super Bowl pick. And while I have detractors out there, especially Eagles fans, whose team I chose and who by some act of cosmic devilry was robbed last year of the Lombardi Trophy, I do believe that over the years I actually have a winning record when it comes to casting the Urim and the Thummim, the mystical soothsaying chicken bones mentioned in the book of Samuel. As such, this year I went once again to my secret shelter of woven vines and hyssop deep in the ramble of Central Park. <laughs> the prophecy that the Urim and the Thummim offered this week was at first unclear, as chicken bones, even in the best of circumstances, can be difficult to interpret. Faces flashed before my eyes, Patrick Mahomes, Christian McCaffrey, Brock Purdy, Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift jumping up and down. But wait, was she happy or angry? It was difficult to say. Was this a vision from God or was I hallucinating on the vape fumes that now permeate our beloved park? Seriously, you can't walk anywhere. I felt prophetically confused. I sighed and, and then I cried aloud to the powers that be. I do not understand these visions. My faith is too small. Please forgive me. And then I heard it. A still small voice whispered, you are forgiven for your paltry faith and meager understanding. And now since the outcome of the game is still unclear to you, consider this. How many times did Jesus tell his followers that they must forgive each other? Well, I responded, I believe he said that we should forgive each other not just seven times, but seven times seven times. There, said the voice on the wind, there is your answer. And at that moment, I remembered my times tables. Seven times seven is... Good friends, my prophetic muse says, go with the team led by Mr. Irrelevant and be forgiven. Seven times seven, last year's blunder. Final score, 49ers 27, Chiefs 23. Remember to tithe your winnings. <laughs> Let us pray. Guide us, O oh God, by your word and spirit, that in your truth we may see light. In your light we might find freedom and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
This winter, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church has been spending five weeks, and this is week number five, exploring, because next week is Lent, you heard that, Lent's coming. We've been taking the last five weeks to explore the nature of beloved community, the evocative moral vision central to the writings and preaching of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We began our study by examining this country's unofficial motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And we acknowledged the steep and perhaps impossible challenge that our nation faces in seeking to make this hopeful phrase real. Next, we, we pivoted to consider people's tendency to discount love as an agent for change. Our, our suspicions about love's power and efficacy were confronted by Dr. King's wise and I think empirically true observation that love may be the only force capable of moving humanity toward a more just and compassionate world. Last week, Reverend Natalie Owens Pike contemplated the natural human impulse to curse those who have wronged us. And then she pointed toward an alternative. She provided vistas of moments, hard moments, when human beings have moved in the aftermath of conflict to embrace paths of healing. The good reverend called each of us to embrace our inner saint as we seek not revenge against our enemies, but wholeness for all God's children. Today, we, we come to the final section of Romans 12, and, and here the Apostle Paul continues to talk about how we ought to behave in Christian community, and he talks about how to overcome evil in this world. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes from the 12th chapter of Romans beginning with the 15th verse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. 
for by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Library of Congress calls We Shall Overcome the most powerful song of the 20th century. Sung countless times across this country during the Civil Rights Movement, sung on courthouse steps and college campuses, sung by marchers crossing literal and figurative bridges, sung by faithful souls who were being pelted with rocks, pestered by snarling dogs and threatened with all manner of evil, this song has an indelible place in our country's history, in the tapestry of, of our nation's ever-evolving efforts to seek the lofty heights that, that our most hallowed documents point toward, liberty and justice for all. E pluribus unum. I've sung We Shall Overcome so many times. I've sung it quietly in the aftermath of a school shooting while tears spooled down people's faces. I've sung it clumsily on a seminary campus standing in a circle of mostly white students, many who were singing it for the first time, earnestly swaying offbeat, trying to celebrate Black History Month. There we go. I've witnessed it sung by a high school choir whose director invited parents in the audience to sing along, sing with your kids. And I've watched as only a handful of those folk were even willing to give it a try. And I wondered, did they not know the song? Did they not understand its significance? Were, were they embarrassed? The awkwardness of the moment hurt my heart. Sometimes I feel like this, this country, my friends, less and less tethered to religious communities and to the experience that we're having right now of gathered worship, sometimes I fear that this country is losing its ability to sing together. And this is a tremendous loss. Maybe it would help if people knew the history of the song. The foundational tune that lies beneath We Shall Overcome can be traced back to the 1700s in an old Latin hymn known as O Sanctissima. I bet your maestro knows this. Beethoven actually wrote a version of O Sanctissima. And if you were to leave here and Google Beethoven's O Sanctissima and listen to it, you might find yourself thinking, this sounds a lot like we shall overcome and you would be right. The words for we shall overcome come from a well-known black preacher in Philadelphia, the Reverend Charles Albert Tindley. Tindley first published the familiar words to his hymn 
in 1901. And from there, the hymn made its way into hymnals all over this country and even in other parts of the world. So the notes come from an old Latin hymn. The lyrics come from an African-American preacher. When did it become a protest song? Good question. In 1945, at the American Tobacco Cigar Factory in Charleston, South Carolina, members of the Food, Tobacco, Agricultural, and Allied Workers Union went on strike. They went on strike to demand that the company fulfill promises that it had made during World War II regarding back pay and wage increases. The company had basically said, things are tight right now, we're at war, but don't worry, when the war is over, we'll take care of you, and then they didn't. So the workers went on strike. And they also went on strike to insist that managers at the company treat all workers with respect and without racial discrimination. The striking workers were largely, although not exclusively, African-American women. And this is where we shall overcome enters in. At the end of every day, the striking women at the cigar factory would sing Reverend Tindley's old hymn together. After walking the picket line for hours, the hymn became an act of solidarity, courage, and hope. Basically, the women concluded each day by saying to each other, by, by singing to each other, take heart, our efforts here are not in vain, we shall overcome someday. Visiting those picket lines, listening to those women sing, a white folk musician and eventual civil rights organizer named Zilphia Horton picked up the hymn. And Ms. Horton would later teach the song to her friend, a little known musician named Pete Seeger. And from there, the song bounced around on the fringes of the folk music scene in this country until the 1960s when, of course, it caught fire in a major way. The tune was easy to sing, and the words acknowledged both struggle and looking forward in hope. So, so it's not surprising, of course, that Dr. King made ample use of this song in his lectures and sermons. In his speech at Temple Israel in Hollywood, California, King quoted the anthem's core sentiment. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. And then King went on to say, and I believe it because somehow, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is, re is right. Truth crushed will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future. 
and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. My, my. Did you catch King's imagery there? Truth on the scaffold. Truth on the scaffold is truth that's been hung by a noose, lynched by a mob, murdered. And yet somehow faithful follower of the crucified Christ that he is, King makes the audacious claim that it is from the shadows of the hangman's scaffold that God's convicting power will come and hold sway over humanity's future. I do believe we shall overcome someday. All of this is to say, It pains me to hear, we shall overcome, sung as a dirge. I worry over the state of us. Do our hearts lack fertile soil for Reverend Tindley's words? Maybe in, in this terribly divisive time, in a moment when our elected leaders fight without quarter and seem incapable of passing any legislation of consequence, maybe it's impossible to summon the the hope, the vision, the belief in someday to sing this, this folk ballad with conviction. Some suggest the root of our, our problem is this, we cannot agree on what we need to overcome. And we cannot agree on how to go about it. And I've been thinking about those, those two possibilities this past week. What do we need to overcome? How should we go about it? And I've come to this conclusion. I think we mostly agree on the issues that need to be addressed in this culture. Our lists are not 100% the same, they never will be, but I think there's a ton of overlap. So so here's a peek at, at, at Scott's list of pressing issues. See if it has any resonance with yours. Immigration, secure borders, asylum, the status of dreamers, suicide rates, fentanyl, illegal and ever more powerfully addictive drugs, race, race in policing, race in education, race and violence, an aging population, elder care, the future of our workforce, mass shootings, guns, and mental health care, climate change, and care for God's creation economic opportunity, fair wages, college and vocational educational access, gender and human sexuality. I think, I'm arrogant enough to think that most members of our society would agree that these items and not, dare I say, Taylor Swift's romance with Travis Kelsey ought to be the focus of our lawmakers' attention. 
These are the things that should be the subject of careful argument. They should be discussed in public forums and even our schools. And, and from these discussions, we ought to be attempting solutions and, and maybe, you know, occasionally passing a piece of legislation to address these issues. Has that simple hope become a pipe dream? Maybe. I say this because the place we falter as a society is not in pointing to and identifying real issues, critical, critically important topics. We falter when it comes to the, the brass tacks to the question of how. How shall we overcome? And because we cannot agree on or even imagine together how we will overcome, We've become stymied, stuck, mired as a society. Fortunately, our faith has been there. In, in today's passage from Romans, Paul famously encourages the Christian community to overcome evil with good. And, and that's the this kind of statement that typically gets all of Christ's followers nodding. Overcome evil with good. Yes, yes, we can get into that. But how? <laughs> how do we go about this work? And Paul's ready for this question. He anticipates our furrowed brows. In fact, the answer rise, lies right in, in the... Uh, the first two sentences of today's passage. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Here Paul asserts that the key to beloved community is empathy. Don't be haughty. Don't think better of yourself than others. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Sit down and weep alongside those who weep. Have empathy for each other. And in so doing, you will find yourself on a path to overcoming evil. On this count, Dr. King agreed with the Apostle Paul, by the way, in, in 1967 at Riverside Church here in New York, King gave a speech entitled Beyond Vietnam. In the speech, King said, here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of us. King went on to say that loving the enemy, extending empathy to brothers and sisters who are opposed to us, can be a lifeline to a society that is stuck. I think King's right. But I will also grant that empathy is a hard sell right now. It's a hard sell to people who have become convinced that their 
neighbor's thoughts are both wrong-headed and wicked. Empathy is also a hard sell when we believe that we share nothing in common with our neighbors, when we believe that our troubles and our truths and our worries are unique and cannot be translated. Empathy is a hard sell right now. And that may be precisely why it's so doggone important. In the summer of 2000, my wife Amy took me to a concert in Austin, Texas for my birthday. The venue was called The Backyard, a small amphitheater in the middle of a grove of live oaks, a place we cherished. We saw Lyle Lovett and his big band at the backyard. We saw Bonnie Raitt at the backyard, possibly best concert ever in the history of the universe. <laughs> Surrounded by the twisting limbs of those massive trees under stars that really do shine clear and bright deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> Looking at you, Betty. We heard some mighty fine music. On that particular night, we came to see Tracy Chapman. If you can wear out a compact disc, Amy and I just about melted her 1988 self-titled breakout album. Tracy Chapman was our vintage. In fact, she's pretty much the same age as me. She sang of a world that we recognized in a poetry that we could understand and always with such heart that it drew us closer. Chapman's songs were earnest and honest, sometimes hopeful, sometimes not. Her song Across the Lines offered a painful and poignant picture of race on race violence. Her ballad, Baby Can I Hold You, stolen a couple of years later by Nicki Minaj. I'm just saying, <laughs> bad Nicki. <laughs> Includes the fabulous pleading lyric, maybe if I told you the right words at the right time, you'd be mine. We loved her music. We appreciated her way of looking at the world. So on my birthday at the backyard, listening to her sing, I was a bit surprised when the fellow sitting next to me drinking a Texas-sized beer, and yes, everything really is bigger there, remarked on the number of female couples and interracial couples who were sitting around us. He smiled at me and said, buddy, <laughs> I'm not sure this is our demographic. Uh, I smiled and turned back to the stage. You see, no notoriously private, word had gotten out that Tracy Chapman was dating Alice Walker. Yes, that Alice Walker, the author of The Color Purple. The truth was, I didn't care who she was dating. And until that moment, I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to the crowd because you see, as strange as it may sound, I felt like I was Tracy Chapman's demographic. 
and I was there to soak in all that she had to say or sing, especially her breakout hit, Fast Car, a song about life in a small town with a dead-end job at a convenience store and the burden of a needy alcoholic father. It's a song about the weight of life and wanting to escape it all in a fast car. And that, in some very specific ways, was my demographic. Last Sunday, the, the Grammy Award broadcast took me back to that moment. You may not know, but this past year, Luke Combs, a big bearded white boy country singer, revived Chapman's song, Fast Car, and he took it all the way to number two on the country charts. He called it a perfect song, and he sang that perfect song at the Grammys alongside the reclusive but still absolutely captivating Tracy Chapman. Seeing her, hearing her clear tenor voice took me back to that night under the live oaks. And that moment in the Grammys gave me hope. Hope that in the poetry of our souls, Hope that in the real and honest songs that our hearts sing, we can connect. Across all the divides that we've drawn, we can connect. We can recognize truths in each other. We can find the good in each other, good, powerful enough to overcome evil. Doggone it, if the Apostle Paul isn't right, there's, there's nothing like a little empathy to grease the wheel of how. The prescription that we hear in Romans is not all that complex. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. This is the first step in the dance of how in how we move beyond pernicious divides to wrestle the demonic powers that are out there to the mat. Empathy, my friends, is how we overcome. Members of the beloved community, have courage in this time, hold fast, to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.